Just want to say happy Mother's Day to you all. How are you? Yeah, this is a, a good day, a good day to celebrate. And I know this is a, a great day for so many as we kind of say yay, Mom, and, and for those of us who have relationships with our mothers and uh, who have mothers in our lives, we say, oh, man, this is awesome, this is great. And I know it can also be a sad day for some because you've lost your mother or uh, you want to you be a mom and that's not happening. And so I know there's always like a mixed feeling around Mother's Day. And so I just wanted to start out by us praying and, uh, and, and thanking God for moms and kind of acknowledging and sort of putting out there what is around Mother's Day. Um, so we'll do that, and then we're going to jump into what we're going to talk about today. So let's pray together. Dear Father, we uh, approach your throne on, on behalf of the mothers whom you have entrusted with the care of your most precious little ones. We thank you for creating each mom with a unique combination of gifts and talents. We thank you for the sacrifice of self each mom gives for her children, for the late nights spent rocking a colicky infant, for the hand callous from washing, wiping, scrubbing, mixing, backing, stirring, hugging, patting, disciplining, holding, writing, erasing, painting, and pouring. We thank you for the gift of time moms give for their kids, whether it's stay-at-home moms, working moms, and moms who have some combination of the two. We thank you for the flexibility of moms, for their tirelessness, their perseverance, and their devotion. We pray you give each mom strength today. Help her to see in, her, in every mundane task the eternal cosmic significance that you place on motherhood. Help her to understand that the most radical world-changing events may be happening anonymously in her home. Help her to forgive those who undermine her significance. We especially pray for single moms who must lean solely on you for the fathering of their children. We thank you that, you're big enough, that your big arms surround children who may never know their earthly father. We also pray for those who never have had the honor of bearing children, but whose nurturing spirit extends to the many poor and needy who cross the threshold of their lives. We ask you to be the daily bread of tired mothers. We ask you to be their living water. We ask you to be their source of spiritual and physical strength. We pray that the same grace that flowed from father to son in us in salvation will flow from mothers to their children. We pray that each mother rejects perfectionism and instead embraces the goodness of the gospel. We pray the rhythms of repentance and forgiveness shape every home. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. When I think about mom, and maybe moms, I, I often think about like food, and maybe you do too. Maybe you think like, oh, my mom makes the best spaghetti, or my mom always made like the best meatloaf or something like that. I grew up in a home, both my parents were from England, and so my mom's cooking was British, which is not like universally known for its cuisine, right, like England. Uh, so you, we would have food that's like, you know, toad in the hole and, and things that sound like a dare, you know, more than a meal. <laughs> you know, we'd have like shepherd's pie and um, uh, fish and chips was quite, quite the thing, roast beef and Yorkshire pudding, which isn't as good as it sounds. Um, and so we would have these things growing up, and that was what I thought food was. And I, and I knew no different. I mean, like, this is great. Okay, we have this food. It's fine. Um, I learned at an early age that vinegar is not just a cleaning product, but it's a real condiment that you would use in food, you know. So this is like uh, what I grew up with. Over time, I think my relationship to food has changed. Maybe it's because we have so much information available to us about food. There's uh, an endless, almost endless source of information about food in documentaries, online, in books, and different stuff where there's the slow food movement, there's fast food, there's all this info about what's in our food, how it's being made, how it's being processed. Um, and so there's all these ethnic foods that we can eat. And so uh, things change around food. And, and, I, and I have felt 
myself uh, change a little bit. And I've noticed as an adult that I, I pay more attention to what I'm eating and I eat emotionally. Do you, do you eat emotionally? Like I'm, I'm sad, so I eat. Um, I'm really happy, so I eat something. I feel lonely, so I eat something. I'm really tired, so I have something to eat. You know, I'm, I'm missing my family, so I eat something. I'm, I'm with my family, so I eat something. I'm, I'm awake, so I eat something. Like I, and so today I just wanted to talk about what's going on there. What is going on with food? And how does it connect to happiness, which has really been the theme of this entire series? And how do these things point us to something even, even greater than, than all of that. Um, in this series, we have been talking about uh, happiness, and we started with this, uh, some ideas from Psalm 1 around God and, and what, it, what it's like to be in relationship with him. And then we went into week two, we talked about the difference between pleasure and happiness and how our culture kind of mixes those things up. And we talked about dopamine and serotonin in the brain. Um, and then these last three weeks, we've talked about that these factors that build serotonin in the brain or contribute to happiness. And these are just sort of some base level things that we can do that, that will help us to be happy. They don't guarantee happiness, but these are things that we can build towards. So the first week was connection. When we are connected to one another, uh, there's happiness to be found in that. We're not designed to be alone and be hermits. Uh, number two, uh, contribution. We talked about when you make a difference, it makes a difference. When you make a difference in other people's lives, it helps them, but it helps you too and builds happiness in your life as well. Last week, we talked about coping, uh, different coping skills of getting enough sleep, thinking about our thinking, meditation, that sort of thing, uh, that there's some, some deep sort of biblical roots to all that stuff and, and how those are valuable. And I told everyone to go home and take a nap. I hope you did. Um, and then uh, today, I want to talk about the last piece, which is cooking. It also starts with C, so that worked out really well. Um, and where God meets us. Now, I'm not going to give you recipes today, by the way. Um, if you want those, you can go somewhere else and get those. But... Uh, talk about where God meets us in food and, uh, and, and what we can learn from that. If you go back to the beginning of creation, as recorded in the scriptures, you see a, a very interesting thing there. If you read Genesis 1, it talks about God creating the earth. And it talks about how he makes the sun and the moon and the stars and the, the planets and the, the vegetation on earth and the land and the water and then the, the birds and the fish and the animals and then humanity is kind of made. And it goes through the order of creation as it, God makes all these things. And if you pay attention to the verbs that are used in Genesis 1, you see God doing a lot of things. God is blessing. God is naming. God is hovering. God is separating. God is drawing things out. Like you see all these verbs that show up in Genesis 1. But in Genesis 1.28, you see the beginning of God giving. It's the first time it says God gives something. It's a gift from God. And the first gift mentioned in Genesis uh, 28 is uh, food. Food is the original gift from God. And I want to read it to you so you can see it. Genesis 1, we'll start with verse 28. We'll put it up on the screen. And God blessed them. It's talking about Adam and Eve. He blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. All right, so God creates and the first thing he gives is this gift of food. 
He says, I'm giving you something. I want you to take care of the earth. I want you to multiply, you know, have children, uh, watch over the earth, take care of it. And I have given you, he basically says, I've given you every green thing on earth to eat. And for the animals, I gave them the green things as well. So green leafy vegetables is what we get right up front. Now, if you're a vegetarian or a vegan or something like that, or just like a non-meat eater, this is your jam. Because right here at the beginning, it says God gave you vegetables to eat. That was the point. However, if that was the only verse we had in the Bible, I would, I would agree with you and say, yeah, this is what, this is what we, we should do. Um, there are other verses in the Bible that talk about God giving us meat. Uh, there, there's uh, Jesus eats meat in the New Testament. I mean, you see the, the whole conversations around that kind of stuff. So there's maybe a broader picture there than just vegetables. But what I want you to see is at the very beginning, God gives a gift. And the gift is food. It's supposed to be a, a blessing from, from him. You think about all the gifts God has given to us. God has given us the air we breathe. He has given us mountains to look at and oceans to, to, to visit and swim in and things like that. God has given us uh, beautiful materials that were used to create this building, the brains behind creating a space like this. God has given us all these things. God has given us Adele's singing voice. Like all of these things God gifted the world with. Um, and, and, but the original gift of all of that was, was food. Um, that means that food is more than just fuel for the body. We, we hear that all the time, especially if you do run in any sort of health and fitness circles. They talk about, oh, food's your fuel. And I guess we like that. I think men like hearing that, like biofuel. That's why we drink things like muscle milk and stuff like that. We're like, yeah, it's a, it's a fuel for my machine, you know. Um, but there's more to it than that. Uh, Fred Bonson in his book, um, Making Peace with the Land, he says it this way, food is not a product, it is not fuel for the machine, it is not a commodity or reflection of our technological ingenuity, it is before everything else an unearned gift from God, manna from heaven, a blessing. Now what would change for us if we really thought of food as a blessing from God, if we appreciated it as such? I mean, sometimes that's easy, right? When I have shindigs, I think it's a blessing from God. I'm like, stack that cake up. I'm like, this is God's, God loves me, clearly. Um, but can I think that way about carrots, about broccoli, about beef stroganoff, about other things that have been prepared and put together? Uh, can I appreciate them as gifts from God? Can I thank God for those things in the moment and not just like plow through a plate and ignore where it came from? Or as they say in Ratatouille, Ratatouille don't just hork it down. Right? Can I not just hork it down, but actually appreciate, no, this comes from God. Christians for millennia, and, and even before them, uh, have been thanking God for their food. Maybe, and maybe you're in the habit of doing this. You, you pause before you eat, and you say a prayer, and you say, thank you, God, for giving this to me. And if you don't do that, maybe that's a habit that you could pick up starting this week. And don't worry if you don't word your prayer properly, and if you think you sound like Ben Stiller and Meet the Parents, and you're going to totally blow the prayer. Don't worry about that. Just appreciate what God has put on your plate. Thank the one who cooked it, but thank the one who even designed your body to enjoy it. Um, it is the original obvious gift from God, and maybe it's so obvious that we ignore it, but we need to remember it. So many of God's gifts get distorted. I think this is one of Satan's greatest schemes, that Satan wants to destroy us, and one of the ways he does it is 
helps us or makes us think that a good thing is the ultimate thing and distorts the gift. So you can take any good gift and overdo it and overindulge in it, and it becomes a distorted and actually a bad thing. Uh, there's a word for this in the, New, in, in the New Testament, the Old Testament, called idolatry. Idolatry is when we make an idol out of something. The, the place that we should give to God is ultimate. We take something else, which might be a good thing, and we make that ultimate. So people do this all the time with their children, with their money, career, a car, a house, success, sex. Like all of these things, we take them and they're good things on their own, but we make them the ultimate thing that we serve and they become idols to us. And there's a distortion that happens there. It's easy to see, and we've talked about this before, in sex, sex is designed by God to be experienced within the confines and the context of marriage. It is a good gift from God to bond people together at a, at a deeply spiritual level between people who are, are married to grow that relationship. And Satan comes along and says, actually, that's so good. You should try this all over the place and experience that outside of that context. And he ends up distorting the thing that God gave us for our good, distorts it, and we end up with all sorts of problems and dysfunction because we are, are, are using that gift outside of the way God designed it. And you certainly see that with food. Food is good and is a blessing from God, but we end up distorting it and over, overuse it and, and develop an idolatrous relationship with it. Um, you can see our idolatrous relationship with it. Think about this. We have an entire TV channel devoted to food. Isn't that weird? You thought about that, Food Network? You've watched it before, right? Have you ever seen that, Food Network? I mean, it's so weird because food is something you have to taste and smell, both of those things you can't do with a television. So all you're doing is watching someone else make and enjoy food. And then you have to rely on them saying how good it is. And they're like, oh, it's so good. Oh. And you're like, I bet that would be good. And you're still going to watch it. Because you can't tell. You can't smell it. You can't eat it. It's weird, isn't it? It's, we love food so much, we just look at pictures of it. And images of it. We're like, oh, look at that. Look at the cheese dripping off the edge of that. Like, what? That's weird. It's weird in a world that some people don't have access to good food. It's weird in a city, even in Richmond, that we have food deserts where people have food insecurity, that there are places also where there's so much food, we actually eat it, enjoy it, have as much of it as we want, and then we watch videos about it and like watch shows about it and like how much and how awesome it is. It's kind of, a, kind of an odd, an, a, a, a really odd thing that, that happens. And so I, I have seen uh, food sort of show up in my own life in, in a sinful way. I've, I've, I've used food to medicate pain. I've had a glass of wine to relieve stress. I've, I've pounded chocolate when I, when I wanted to feel better about something. I have eaten food, and then I felt ashamed of eating it. And shame is never from God. Shame shows up when you uh, distort God's plan and his boundaries and go outside of God to do something. Um, Maybe you've done this. Have you ever eaten something and then hidden the wrapper of it? Like you're just like, I'm going to eat this, but I'm going to bury this wrapper way in the trash can so nobody finds it. Have you ever, you ever done that? Is that just me? The other day, I, I had eaten well for the day. I, I fasted through breakfast. I get to lunchtime. I had like a salad, you know, with some protein in there. I'm like, oh, it's a good decision. I'm eating well. I had some healthy snacks. Made dinner. It's a good dinner. You know, we, we did pretty well there. The brown rice, not the really good tasting rice. We did the brown stuff and then the broccoli because that's good for you. Eating this thing. And then I went out to a meeting and I came home and my youngest son had made a pan of, of brownies. And, you know, I'd been doing so well that day on food. 
And I get home, and the house smells like brownies, and the family's already had their brownies, and so I was like, ooh, and they're really good brownies, too. I'm like, I'm going to have a brownie. So I had a brownie. Actually, I had two brownies. Actually, I had a third of the pan of brownies right there <laughs> in that moment, and it was terrible. It was so good and so bad at the same time, and, I ate, and, I, and the only reason I had a third of the pan is that's all that was left after my family had had it, so I might have had more if I had the opportunity, and I did the thing where I'm like, I'm just going to cut these in half so I don't eat all of them, you know, and then I would cut it in half, and then I'd eat both parts over time, you know, like, I, I think that makes it better if you do that, I don't know, but I'm like, oh, let me have this bit, and so I, you guys, I ate like a third of a pan of brownies on a day when I'd been eating really well, and I was kind of ashamed of that, and I talked to my wife, and she, uh, she's like, why, you know, why'd you eat all the brownies? I'm like, well, they're just so good. <laughs> like, I don't know, the dopamine kicks in, and my brain's like, more brownies, this is amazing. And I'm like, doesn't that happen for you? She's like, no, I just eat a brownie, and then I'm done. I'm like, that was good, and I'm done. I'm like, I don't even understand that. How do you just have one of those? They're, they, why, well, don't you eat them and think, I gotta have another one of those? Like, that's just weird, right? But I've done that. I've, I've felt ashamed for what I, what I eat. Um, and there's, there's, just some stuff going on there in our culture. There's a big distortion in our food system around sugar. Uh, sugar is a spice like cinnamon or cardamom or sage or something. You know the spices, the rack of spices in your house that you might have? Uh, sugar, historically, has been one of those. And a little container there. So, oh boy, I add a little sugar to it. Um, in, since about 1970, 1980, somewhere in there, sugar has become not a spice but a staple of the American diet. It, they put it in everything. It's in everything. So now we have a ton of sugar. And if you want to, if you said, I'm, hey, man, sugar, man, I need to cut out sugar from my diet. I'm going to no longer drink soda and I'm no longer going to eat sweet desserts. If you just cut those two things out, you've only cut out like 51% of the sugar in your diet. So there's still 49% of sugar that shows up in all the things that you don't think about, like ketchup and hamburger buns. Um, sugar is all over the place in our culture, and it's just gotten kind of weird out there, and we don't notice because it's just, oh yeah, this is just what it is, and we don't notice how it shows up. And there's some pretty good evidence to show that the top six health problems that Americans face, like 80% of all health problems, uh, cardiovascular disease, hypertension, um, uh, cancer, depression, like that th 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 these things are um, connected to our consumption of sugar. So this isn't good, right? This is a problem. What, what can be done? What, how can we handle food differently? Because the truth is, eating food should be a good thing, and it there should kick in some happiness in us, and eating and receiving food with gladness, that is a good thing, and it should make us happier and, and bring us closer to God. In fact, David, when he writes about the creation of the world in Psalm 104, he writes this song. I went and read it to you. Listen to verses 13 through 15. He talks about God, and he says, from your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. Isn't he saying that, man, these are good gifts. The food, the food that God brings is meant to be enjoyed. Um, it's a great thing. This is why the, the early church in the book, in, book of Acts, we read this the last couple of weeks, the early church is meeting together, they're praying, they're fellowshipping, they're, they're teaching, they're, and it says they're eating together in their homes every day, and they're, they're giving thanks and enjoying it all with glad and some generous hearts. Like there's a good thing going on even around food in, in, the, in the early church. 
So how do we, um, how, how do we do this? How, how can we relate to food better uh, this way? Um, first of all, I think you can prepare food for yourself. Um, if you are preparing food at home, you, you can put less sugar in it, and there's a good chance it'll make you healthier, um, and you have some control. Actually, serotonin in the brain needs certain foods to build it. So if you eat Taco Bell all the time, uh, you won't build up serotonin in the brain and you won't be happy. I mean, it's, it's kind of weird, but there's, there's really a connection there. Serotonin is found and built from things like omega-3s that you find in fish. Uh, I don't like fish, so there's a problem. But it's also built in uh, tryptophan, which is the thing that we usually think of around Thanksgiving turkey. That there's, We think that's the thing that makes us fall asleep. I think it's football games, but we think it's the tryptophan. But uh, those are things that... Uh, when you have them in your food, they actually build serotonin that can help us be happy. Um, but we need to cook our own meals and share them with others. Robert Lustig, who wrote the book, The Hacking of the American Mind, uh, I've mentioned it before in this series. He goes through happiness and pleasure and all that stuff. And towards the end of the book, he has a chapter on cooking. And towards the end of the book, this is what he says. I offer you my single most important key to happiness. Cook real food for yourself, for your friends, and for your family. Because when you make a meal and share it with people, you're cooking real food that's good for you, that builds up serotonin. You are contributing, you're making something for someone else that also builds serotonin. You are connecting with people uh, and, and, and hanging out, you know, connecting with other, other folks and building relationship there that also builds serotonin. So uh, he, he, would, he would say right there, the best thing you could do is cook a meal and share it with friends. This is why next Saturday we're doing something called Around the Table. And we've done this before at Area 10, and it's been a good time for people who sign up for it and go. You have the opportunity next Saturday to go share a meal with some people from Area 10. Get to know some new folks. Uh, bring something that you made and share it with everyone. Uh, and, and that's going to be a fun time. We've got houses around the city set up to be host homes. Sign up for that through the Area 10 app, through our website, and say, hey, I'll show up. I'll go eat and, and hang out with folks, and, and this is a great thing. And, and see what God does there. Um, see how that, that affects you when, when, you do, when you do these things. See what it builds up in, in your brain. Um, so there you have it. Four things, connection, contribution, coping, and, and cooking uh, that help build happiness. Um, I hope that these four things over the last four weeks have been helpful to you. But I want to close this series out in a similar place to where we started the series. I want to close out by pointing you to something that is actually greater than happiness. Because if, if you have been here for the last six weeks and you go, oh, okay, here's some base level things I can do to be happy, and you think happy is the end, um, then I've not, I've not made, made my point. Um, there's actually something greater than happiness in store for us that's, that's more important that we understand. Um, I want to tell you, and to close this out, I want to tell you a story about Jesus. A guy named John was one of Jesus' closest friends. He traveled around with him for years, and he, and he recorded what Jesus taught. Not everything Jesus said. John, at the end of his book, what's called the book of John in the New Testament of the Bible, John says, man, this isn't everything. Uh, Jesus did plenty of stuff. I just wrote down a few things. And, and so he recorded some of the things that Jesus did. And if you read John chapter 6, and I would encourage you to go home tonight and read John chapter 6. If you read John 6, you'll see 
uh, kind of the order that things happen there. What, what happens is uh, Jesus is teaching by the Sea of Galilee in northern Israel, and crowds are swamping him. There's just people following him. And uh, I don't know if you've ever been to a church where there's no end time on the service. So you go there and you're like, this could go all day. Like, we don't know. It's been how the Spirit of God's moving. We might just be here all day. And like, if you've been to church like in Haiti and some place like that, it's, it's very much the thing, right? So um, Jesus is preaching. He's just going on a while, I guess. And it's going for a while. And there's thousands of people there listening to him speak. And it's just really good. And eventually, some of his disciples come to him and they're like, um, there's no food. Like, we've been here for so long. People are hungry. We don't have enough food for everyone. And Jesus is like, well, what food do we have? And they're like, well, this one kid has like some bread and, and a couple bits of fish and you know, a few pieces of bread. Jesus is like, that'll be good. We'll take that. We'll make fish sandwiches. Everybody will have one. A filet of fish right here. It's going to be really good. And so Jesus miraculously takes just a little bit of bread and several fish and ends up feeding five, it says 5,000, but that's just the men. So if you had women and children in, maybe 15,000 or more people, he feeds from just a couple pieces of bread and fish. I don't know how it worked. I don't know if um, every time you tore off a piece of bread and a new piece appeared, I don't know like what, how the miracle kind of went, but it happened, and John records it for us as an eyewitness to the thing, and these people are miraculously fed. Then Jesus gets away from the crowd because he needed to unplug every now and then, and he gets away from the crowd, um, and he's with his disciples and kind of hanging, and the crowds continue to follow him, and they come to him, and listen to the conversation that goes down. We'll pick it up in verse 30, uh, 25, I think. Yeah, 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. He's talking about the bread he did for them. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that will that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Which is a good question. Hey, we want to do the works of God. We want to be, you know, God's people. What do we need to do? Uh, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Okay. Interesting. So here's a crowd of people that come to Jesus and he's like, you're just here for the bread. Like, you just want to eat more bread. And they're like, no, tell us what we need to do. And he's like, well, you need to believe in the one who sent me. And, the, and, then, and then they say, well, like, what miracle can you do for us? Isn't that weird? He just did one. And it was involving bread. They ju he just, if I'm Jesus, I'm like, again, you guys? Like, how many times? Oh, will you believe me next time I do? I'll go walk on water. Are you going to believe that? Probably not. You're going to be like, what else can you do, you know? Like, here they come. It's like, it seems so insensitive. Here they come asking for bread. Wait, what, what else you got? That was great. You fed us. Can you, can you do that? Can you do that thing again? Um, it's weird. It still goes on today. There, there's a term that missionaries use. They call uh, overseas, they call the they use the term rice Christians. They say these are people who are only following Jesus when you're giving them free food. When the food stops, they're not interested. And that sounds like, oh, man, that's kind of weird. But I think there's a tendency in all of us to be like that. Like when the goodies go away, I'm not interested in God. I'm not interested in really having a relationship with God. I just want the stuff. And if you take the stuff away, then maybe I'm just going to 
quit the whole thing. Um, can we actually be satisfied by this bread of life that Jesus is calling us to? Look at verse 32. He says this, Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. So he's still rocking the metaphor with them, saying, look, I know there was bread, but the true thing is who has come from God. He's talking about himself, right? It's like, you need to understand who really comes from God and satisfies you. And they're like, oh, there's another kind of bread? Can we have that? Right? And they're, yeah, give us that every time. That sounds awesome. Sign us up. Now, understand, in their culture, bread is the primary sustenance of a meal. It's the main course. For us, it's like an app. It's like the thing they bring you before dinner. Oh, there's a bread basket. This is awesome. Okay. But for them, it's a primary thing. And then Jesus gets very clear with them. Verse 35. Listen to what he says. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus says, no, I'm the thing that will actually sustain you and satisfy you. Do you know the town Jesus was born in? What's the name of that town? Bethlehem, right? That, that's a phrase that means house of bread. So Jesus was born in the bread factory. And he shows up, and years later, he's sitting here telling people, I am the bread that you need. I am the thing, the very heart of life, the very thing that will sustain you. And I alone can satisfy you. C.S. Lewis, about 50 years ago, he, he wrote it down this way. I thought this was a really interesting quote. He says, a car is made to run on gasoline, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed a human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. God cannot give us happiness, can't give us satisfaction and peace apart from himself because it's not there. There is no such thing. And this is what I want you to hear at the end of this series. You can build happiness as we've been discussing. And there are some good things to do, some ways to take care of ourselves, things we need to lean in. But the reality is, none of them will satisfy us. None of them will ultimately fulfill us because we have been designed to be fueled by God himself. You can seek pleasure, and that will last for a couple minutes. You can seek happiness, and that might last for an hour or half a day or something like that maybe a few days, but there's something better than pleasure and happiness, and it's called satisfaction. We can be satisfied with Jesus. What I've observed in people that I know who are believers in Jesus who are dying, I have observed a sense of satisfaction there, that, they, that they're okay with it, that they're ready to go meet Jesus and be in heaven with him, that they've, they've, they've finished the race, that they're ready to go. There's a satisfaction there that's unrelated to happiness. There's nothing happy about you dying. It's going to happen one day. We think it would be perfect if, if I die and I'm surrounded by people I love in a comfortable bed and it just quietly and that's just all there is. And it, it probably won't happen that way. Um, but it is possible, even in, with happy and unhappy circumstances kind of happening throughout our lives, it is possible to have joy. It is possible to be satisfied in Christ. 
This is what he offers to us. And this is what Christians have been learning and understanding for millennia, that he alone can satisfy us. There's something better than, than, than the momentary and fleeting happiness. Um, now, our culture is going to offer us all sorts of options for happiness and pleasure and say, buy this, do this, drink this, be part of this, pursue this uh, experience. And, and those are fine, but ultimately they won't satisfy us. It's only when we feed on the bread of life, when we are connected to that primary source of Christ himself, um, that we will ever be truly satisfied. And I want you to understand that because at the end of the day, that's what this church is about. We're about connecting people to Jesus, not about connecting them to a church in particular, not about connecting people to a couple good ideas that maybe make your life better or something. We're about Jesus because he alone can satisfy us. And so I'm going to pray as we finish this out for our, uh, for our long-term health and satisfaction in him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray confess that I, too often I've chased the quick pleasure or even the, uh, the happiness that um, never really lasts. And those things come and go, Lord, but um, I need and, and we need to be dialed into you as the source that satisfies us. You alone can do that. You can um, give us a sense of peace and joy and contentment that this world cannot take away from us. So God, um, if someone in the room doesn't know you, I pray that this is the day that they say, I want to follow Jesus. I want to give my life to him. I want to be baptized into him. I want to be changed. Um, and God, I, I take to take that even to another level, I, I pray that we don't just come to you for what you can do for us because you can satisfy us. We don't just go there, but we go to a deeper level and say, I just want you for you. I want to know you because of who you are, not just because of how you'll make my life better. Um, God, drive us down into that deeper place. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the satisfaction that you bring. Um, may we all dial into it and know it. Yeah. It's in your name we pray. Amen.